0: Hey, everybody, welcome to Warhorn Media's Biblical Foundation for Aesthetics. My name is Nathan Alberson, your humble and obedient host, as I know you expected. And of course, I've got Pastor Jake Mensel here. How you doing, Nathan? I'm um, doing terrific, Jake. How about yourself? I'm all right. That's good. That's good. We've got also the man, the myth, the legend himself. Hey. The Bookening. I am the Bookening. The Bookening. <laughs> the Bookening in the flesh. How do you do, Mr. I bookening. bookening? I am the Bookening. <laughs> well, in many ways, Brandon, you are the Bookening. Your name. Is Brandon, as I just said. Yep. And your last name is Chastine. On the bookending, you go by the title, The Scholar Who's a Baller of Reading. I do. And today we wanted you to bring your baller-like abilities to a discussion of aesthetics, insofar as they regard literature. Sounds great. As people who are listening to this series know, I've got seven questions that I'm asking of each type of art, Mm -hmm. in this case, literature. Here's my first question for you, Brandon. Yeah. What is distinct? about the medium
1: of literature as opposed to other art? Well, I think primarily when we're thinking about what's distinct about an art form and it's like the medium, how does it get to to us? So, and with literature, the medium is words. And so that would be the primary difference. But I know that you guys have also looked at music. And so music has words with lyrics and cinema has words with, I don't know if that one has been
2: released yet. when we talked about music, we talked about how there's music and there's song. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so there's music in and of itself as a thing that was, you know, that's hard to talk about. Right. But there's also a song where you bring words and pair it with music and, yeah. ha- and, and that effect.
1: And so with, an art, with any art form, there's a primary way, a primary medium. Mm-hmm. And so even if you're thinking of a song, the primary medium of a song is still music. Right. Mm-hmm. And the primary medium of cinema will, is, is visual. It's a visual. You art can form. have a movie without words, you can have a song without words, but you can't have a movie without something visual to it right and so otherwise you have a script right which then that falls into the category of literature because Mm, that's basically what we have with shakespeare there are scripts that nobody has given life to you give life to when you read it and so that would be the first distinction with literature i think would be that it is a written form it's you find it in words you usually find it in a book i mean nowadays you can find it on a kindle i suppose Mm -hmm. or or, um you can have it read to you that doesn't turn it into a not a book Mm -hmm. but the Primary way that you get the story is through prose mm-hmm. or through poetry. The content is words. Do you so. think that there are certain things that
0: literature is better suited for than cinema or yeah, uh, music or like yes. what, what does literature? What does the written word lend itself to, and what does it not lend itself to?
1: So what I what the written word lends itself to. Um, I'm going to borrow a term here from one of my favorites, Robert Penn Warren. So if anybody ever listens to booking, you know, when we talk about poetry, I always bring up Robert Penn Warren. Mm -hmm. That's because he has given me a very useful category to think about this through. And that's the felt experience. And so what he means by that is literature gives us what it feels like to be alive and what it feels like to be a human in the world in a particular culture, in a particular context. And so one of my favorite books is War and Peace. And what that book does is it lets you know what it was like to have been alive during the tumultuous period of Napoleon's invasion of Russia. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, and it's not just like, here's what it would have been like to have been there. The, here are the facts. But it's actually what would it have been like to have felt and experienced these things. And that's what literature gives to us. It's the internal feelings of things that we have and share in common with other people. It's part of our humanity that we have. Uh, like, are we giving away the context of where we are right now? Sure. Like yeah. in history. Yeah. So we're dealing with the coronavirus. As we record this. Uh, yes. Quarantines that are happening. And there are real fears and real anxieties and real... Just ways that we all deal with these things and the need for interaction with other people, but also the need to distance ourselves and the sort of sorrow that that is related, but also the care and stuff that goes into that and all the complex emotions and feelings that are involved in the way. And so all those interactions, that's what literature and poetry gives to us is it helps us to see those. And then it also expands our knowledge of this felt experience by participating in uh, novels, poetry.
0: When you say felt experience. Why does literature give us why? Why is why is that what you say? I mean, can't cinema give us felt experience? Not as in the same way. As, not in the same way.
1: I mean, movies like they try to, but they're always going to be external in a way that books don't have to be. Does it make sense? Mm. Because what books can do is they can give us the inner thoughts and the actual.
2: Well, they can communicate ideas, and yeah, um, we've been thinking. I think largely along the lines of fiction and poetry, but nonfiction and a lot of these elements that bleed into fiction or poetry really just come down to the ability to communicate an idea. Mm -hmm. You can't can't communicate an idea in any way so powerfully as you can with words. Uh, How do you communicate an idea with film? Well, you can give an impression of an idea. You can suggest an idea maybe, but unless you're actually even using words in the context of a film, you're not communicating an idea. And so, when it comes to the language of felt experience it's that window in um even with a character into their inner thought life yeah that is unique to literature all the ways that we can communicate ideas and express yeah what's going on inside people's hearts and minds you know film is going to show you a facial expression music is going to and we've talked about this in its own ethereal way mm-hmm. impact your emotions but nothing so purely connects to your mind and expresses or even gets to your heart through your mind first as literature does
1: and that's because we express ourselves emotionally through words mm-hmm. and so by by being able to share those things and so to go back to war and peace at the ending of the book there's um pierre's nephew who's having these thoughts about his uncle and that's the way the book ends a movie would have to have like a voice over there or it would have to have him thinking to or writing in his journal or saying those things but instead he's feeling these things and Tolstoy can show us the feelings through words and so books have access to something that cinema doesn't I mean I'm sure you guys will talk more about this but aesthetically cinema has to be a much more ambiguous art form because of its limitations there Mm -hmm. unless it's just going to be bad by telling and not showing right which some movies try to do that But so if you think about the really, like the Godfather, all these things, they're always, they feel ambiguous in a way that books don't have to be. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in some ways, books get to be a much more morally unambiguous art form. That's interesting. So, and I didn't, so yeah, ideas, I didn't bring. So when I, when I think of aesthetics, I'm thinking of like um, things that have to deal with beauty, taste. and forms. more, More like art forms. You know, and well, I mean, essay like essays. Philosophical can, treatise. Or... I mean, there are essays that, are def- that definitely fall into these categories. Mm-hmm. So you introduced me to Joseph Mitchell when right. I had my knee surgery. And I mean, New York came to life for me. And that's the other thing that literature does. So if we're thinking definitionally here, something that literature does that also cinema does is it gives us a sense of place and a sense of the world. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that Tolstoy, or Tolkien does this really well. But also Joseph Mitchell there, are, I now want to go to New York City and go to like these little fish shops on the, the docks and go up into these old hotels and explore because Joseph Mitchell gave me the story. Mm-hmm. It can share those things in common with cinema, but like what distinguishes it, which I think that's still the question. Right? Yeah, What distinguishes it, it would be that deeper access.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because if you had just asked me which one is more ambiguous, I may have said literature. If only because I have to use my imagination. There's always that barrier between me and what the author was thinking. I have to do an additional step to get there. And I have to make certain choices that if I'm watching an actor portray something, that actor makes all the choices for me. It's much much more passive.
1: And it's not just, I mean, it's not just cinema. It's also theater. Mm
2: -hmm. Like. We experience that every time we come up against a Shakespeare play. Yeah. There's reading Shakespeare and then there are any number of ways of interpreting Shakespeare on the stage.
1: Mm-hmm. And you can see, and they all, if it's under the hand of a good director, they're they're all pretty plausible. So you have like Kenneth Branagh's Henry V, and then you have um, Tom Hiddleston's Henry V. Right. And they're both fantastic. Once more to the breach, like dear friends. I actually think- Once pref- more to the breach, dear friends. Yes. I think I prefer Tom Hiddleston's. Yeah, I do too.
0: Well, then that example for the St. Crispin's Day thing, Uh, speech, Branagh just comes out and then the patriotic music is blaring. And and he's,
2: you know, on his horse. We view, we proud. He's
0: just doing Braveheart basically, which probably came out before that movie. Yeah. And so, and then uh, Hiddleston's doing a very subtle, like a guy that's actually discovering the speech along with the people that are hearing.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's interesting. So we are a very visual culture. Mm -hmm. And so I do think you're right in the sense that we think that what we see is what we get. Mm -hmm. In other words, that if we can see it, we can understand it. I think science also has made us think that. So we live in a very um, scientific culture, post-enlightenment culture, where we still have this illusion that just because we can see it, we understand it. Mm-hmm. And what we don't see, we can't understand. And so that's how you get into all the foolishness. Well, you got to prove to me that God exists. And we actually think then we can use philosophy in our education to prove that God exists. Well, no, we can't. It's an act of faith, and God has to act on you. We are a very visual culture, and so we prioritize it. And we think then that art forms that deal with visuals like that must be less ambiguous Hmm. than things that don't.
0: That's fascinating.
1: But actually novels don't have to be, just because you can't see a novel doesn't mean that the writer can't make it alive to you. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And doesn't mean that it doesn't have less ambiguity than things you can see, right? Mm -hmm. And so- Well, and different
2: authors are going to be more or less explicit with what they want you to see and understand. Yes, and that's where I was going to go. More or less ambiguous. Jane Austen wants you to know exactly what to think. But yeah, she doesn't care what on.
1: anything looked like. She,
2: yeah. She, she's very happy to leave it all, all up to every scene up to your imagination from a visual perspective. But she's very precise when it comes to everything that's going on inside everybody's head and heart.
1: What they
0: said and what they felt. And there's no questioning cares, her
1: yeah. tone. So that like when you have, even though I've heard it's decent, the new Wes Anderson-ish remake mm-hmm. of Emma. Yeah. It's definitely a remake and a reinterpretation. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows this is not Jane Austen's version, right? Mm-hmm. This person has taken us away from that.
2: Unlike Shakespeare, there is in fact no way to portray an Austen novel on screen that is truly Austen. Yeah, it has to be different because mm-hmm. there's simply no way to communicate yeah. everything that Austen. An Austen
0: novel do. is a record of thoughts and opinions and things that cinema is actually not suited to show us unless we're just going to do clunky voiceover. I mean, someone could sit on camera and read the novel, and I guess that right. would do it. But short of that, you we're don't get lose, that, and so gonna you're going and
1: you're going to lose those things. You know, it's fascinating. Before
0: we get too far away from it, I just want to say, you gave me a new thought, Brandon. I've really had this thought. You know, I have a prejudice in favor of visual things being true. And I've never thought of it using that word, prejudice. Mm -hmm. Maybe I just think when I see something, it's more true than... Like to me, the idea that... Okay, this is maybe get a little weird to even go here. But the idea that God chose the written word to express his story is to tell the story of his son is unintuitive for me. Like, why wouldn't you send Jesus when there's movies? Yeah. Because so we can all just
1: watch him. That's as the a, definitive as a, record of truth. Actually. Yeah. It's a documentary. Right. But he chose the word mm-hmm. and he even chose to call it his son, the word. Mm-hmm. So there is, and yeah, I don't want to get all Gnostic and weird. With yeah, no, either, neither. But there is, but I think that's because we, you, when we're not being lazy, when we're not, when we're actually forcing ourselves to deal with words, words, Are much clearer and have access to truth much more clearly than anything that's visual.
2: Well, Mm. there's more depth to it, right? Like the fact is that if we had seen a record of Jesus on screen, we would think that's all there was to it. Right. But there's always much more. I I don't want to get Gnostic and weird about it either, but in a very spiritual, ethereal sense, there's always something more to what meets the eye, especially when it comes to the things of God. He's so far beyond us mm-hmm. that the word is actually the right medium.
0: Right. And it packs in it just packs in so much. I, I I'm thinking of the sentence, Jesus wept. An actor could only an actor would have to make a choice, you know, like, well, that's how Jesus wept. But those t- two words tell you all kinds of things that visuals could never visuals could visuals could only tell you a small slice of that it. But actually
1: in some way visuals would get in the way of
0: they would, in fact, because they would make one small surface part of it very concrete and all kinds of ethereal, to use a yeah. th- an imprecise word, realities, not concrete.
1: <clears throat> yeah, and so, and to get back to Jake's point, yes, there are authors. And relegated. Who, and relegated, exactly. Yeah. Relegated what?
2: Uh, the, it makes one reality concrete and it relegates all of the other realities that, yeah. that may even be primary.
1: Yeah, yeah, so there's, so two things here then. Mm-hmm. You, one, to go back to your point. Well, I can actually, before we leave that point, one thing I like to describe to my students is the connotation versus denotation. Mm-hmm. And this is the power of metaphor is they, when we talk about vehicle, vehicle and tenor for metaphor, mm-hmm. I like to use the image of like a molecule vibrating and it has all these like energies surrounding it to yeah, connect yeah. other molecules to it. It's like just because you have the word doesn't mean that there's not all these meanings that surround it. Right. They're just always shaking and vibrating off of the word. And that's what connotation is. And the connotations, that's the power of a metaphor, is it can connote things to us that the explicit meaning doesn't just mm. carry. And so, anyways.
2: Well, if you think about it in this way, th- take the story of David and Goliath, for example. The story of David and Goliath has this description of Goliath. You know, mod- many of your modern translations will just sort of casually say that Goliath was dressed in male armor and various things, but it's been a while since I've looked at this and my Hebrew is rusty, but I'm pretty sure that the Hebrew word for male, like male armor, like, you know, Tolkien, mm-hmm. like Frodo, like- M-A-I-L. Uh, M-A-I-L is a uh, snake armor, hmm. right? Or scale armor. Huh. It's meant to evoke the idea of a serpent being, having his head crushed by the chosen one. Mm-hmm all of that is. If we're going to just see that play out on screen, you don't have time or the space to understand all of the connotations that are going on when you see the small shepherd boy Mm -hmm. crushing the giant's head who happens to be explicitly described in serpentine terms. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? And all, all of those things are all over scripture. All of these connotations, you have the real historical event, but the words preserve all of these connotations that that point us to these bigger yeah. realities, bigger spiritual realities of things that are going on. And it's all true. Well, either. Yes, it was a serpent, serpent boy. Goodness, that's twice I've done that. No. Yes, it was a shepherd boy crushing the head of some uncircumcised Philistine. Also, it was this typological thing that was happening mm-hmm. where this chosen one was crushing the serpent's head. The yeah. word allows you to live in that space and see all of it or as much of it, or as little of it.
0: But the word, I think we could generalize and say, stop me if I'm crazy here, of all the art forms that we're going to talk about in this series, the word is the one that contains the most Yeah, in and of itself. you know, like Absolutely. Li- music is going to limit you to a very select kind of feeling about something. Cinema is going to limit you to certain surface realities. Maybe they're deep surface realities, if you know what I mean, dear listener. But it oh. doesn't get at the whole of something, the platonic whole of something, if I can be the able that, to see yeah.
1: Which is the way that words work. I was just thinking about and Jake
0: saying chosen one. It's like, yeah. if my chosen one is Neo from The Matrix, that's a big difference from my chosen one being William Wallace being... But when Jake just uses the phrase chosen one, it means a lot of things pa- and a lot of people all at once. And I... You could also argue that that brings ambiguity into it because I have my, maybe I'm more of a Neo guy than I am a William Wallace guy. And so I, I think of something when Jake says chosen one, but we don't necessarily have to get there yet. I'm sorry, Brandon, I cut you off.
1: And this is the way that God has created his universe. I mean, think of the sacraments. They're all, they're full of suggestions of other things, right? Baptism is not just baptism. It's suggesting something else, right? Yep. And so he has created a metaphorical world that words reflect. Hmm. And words mm-hmm. are one of the most powerful mediums we have for that. And so poetry, I know a lot of people don't read poetry, but actually one of the places where we see this, when you have a good poet, not when you have like this new trash that's on the Poetry Foundation, Rupi Carr. Did I tell, did I, have I showed either of you guys this? The Poetry Foundation, like they just had this, they, it was from a transgender woman and she drew pictures of a, what she would have looked like when she was like seven playing soccer and various little st- like uh, like it was a comic strip mm-hmm. and like just little random words beneath each clip or something. And that was poetry. And it got published in Poetry Foundation's magazine. Oh, boo. Gross. And then you're like, well, if that's what they're publishing, why even try to bother? But mm-hmm. anyways. But poetry is one of the most powerful mediums of this because what poetry tries to do, there are two things that people have to understand. Poetry is actually simpler than people realize. Mm-hmm. Poetry is in love with the way words sound and poetry is in love with the meaning of words. Those two things. And that's that's all poetry is. Is it tries to play with the meanings of words and the images that those can convey through connotation and metaphor, all these things. And it does it by loving the way that words sound when next to one another. So you get alliteration and connotation and assonance. And so that's how it is. So poetry is much closer to music in that sense, because I'm sure you guys talked about this when you did your music episode. But, you know, music is about balance of sounds and rhythms. Mm -hmm. And so is poetry. It's about meter and sound. And people have to realize that that's just, if you don't, if you think that a poem is over your head, it might just be because you need to read it out loud. Mm-hmm. Because the poet just really loved the way it sounded. And so that is part of just, that's part of poetry. And I think understanding that really helps. Yeah, I know it helps students to realize that. And then they'll say, okay, now I get it. When you say, in Xanadu, to Kubla Khan, a stately pleasure, dome decree. Or mm-hmm. out the sacred river ran, through caverns measure, list a man down to a sunless sea. It just sounds amazing. And So. Who cares what it means? <laughs> <laughs> Big uh of Omar Kareem uh, fans, your students are? No. <laughs> so you mentioned that, yes, authors can be intentionally ambiguous. Mm-hmm. And that is true. But the important thing to note there is with literature, authors have to intentionally be that, right? They have had to create that yeah. as an avant-garde technique. Mm-hmm. Right. And so cinema by its nature is like that avant-garde technique because it's just so you had guys like, the Berlin Story guy, Isherwood, Christopher mm-hmm. Isherwood, he w- just wanted to be a camera and go around and just take v- uh, verbal images of things and not let you just you're left to judge it like a journalist. But even guys like Hemingway who tried to do that with their literature, you know, his iceberg theory. Mm-hmm. You go back and you read the Old Man and the Sea. It's still there's a lot of the old man's thoughts in there mm-hmm. that liter that cinema just would not have access to. Even yeah. Faulkner does that. So
2: well, I mean, you yeah, know, the Old Man and the Sea is just what's the Tom Hanks movie? Castaway it's just castaway, yeah without the old man getting inside the old man's head and him thinking about the great Dimaggio you yeah, know, you don't get whatever. the lions
1: on the beach and the that heartbreaking ending where it says the boy goes and he's dreaming about the lions, mm-hmm. yeah you don't get that with a movie without those you know fuzzy dream visualizations <laughs> and stuff like that or him having or just having to have a scene where he's telling the boy, but instead it's the old man's thinking as to himself right and yeah. so even people that we think of as avant-garde or as pushing the limits pushing literature to more cinematic mm-hmm. techniques they're still drawing from those things that only literature does so yeah that's interesting or at least literature does well yeah it's actually hard to be
0: ambiguous with if you if you say brandon threw the frisbee then brandon done through that frisbee whereas if you write a piece of music that's supposed to indicate it or there's ways of filming it so that you don't know whether brandon yeah but you actually have to yeah, go you out see of your way the frisbee
2: in brandon's ha- hand then you cut to the frisbee being in the air
0: the only way you do it is by being so what happened avant-garde. between the cut, right? Yeah. But you can. You, it would take paragraphs, maybe, to yeah. establish the fact that Brandon, that maybe Brandon, Brandon drew had the, the frisbee. frisbee and
2: the frisbee was in the air. And but. there are
1: there are writers who do that, like Thomas sure. Pynchon, David Foster Wallace. They write these big tomes that then confuse everybody. <laughs> but the only reason they confuse everybody is because they're bad, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, people. If you like, I mean. So I think, and I know a lot of philosophers hate me for saying this, but. I think that if a philosopher's bad and is difficult to understand, it's probably not worth understanding. Mm-hmm. So that's why I've never really cared for Kant.
0: Take that, Kant. Yeah, that's exactly right. Oh, I, yeah. In your yeah. face. I hate that guy. I've had philosophers- Is that where you that, were going? Yeah, did I, I said did I I I I trample said Kant. over you? No, we no. said it at the same time. Okay. So actually, air
1: five, Yeah. across the room. What air a bunch elbows. of Kant. Yeah, el, that's right, elbow five. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're in the middle of coronavirus um, right now, folks. <laughs> We're actually the exact safe distance, a little more than the safe distance apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're just over CDC guidelines here at Warhol. That's right. Yep, absolutely. But yeah, so if somebody has to intentionally be ambiguous to hide the fact that they're creating art just to confuse you, and like if that's what rocks your boat <laughs> <laughs> or whatever, then I think you've wandered out of the world of aesthetics and true appreciation of beauty into the world of um, self gratification and narcissism. What especially drives me nuts is the the metaphor that obscures
0: what a dumb modern invention that is, like yeah, a metaphor yeah, is intended like the, metaphor is... the Lord is my shepherd, now I understand something about yep. the Lord, but you read these modern
1: books and and it doesn't mean yeah. that you can't that doesn't mean that there isn't the lazy student sometimes you have to push to say, no, if you actually read Andrew Marvel, you'll understand the what he means by the world collapsing into a planosphere, he's talking about if you actually think about the image of the two lovers at the opposite poles of the world and they can't meet. And he's thinking about, well, but if we're at the opposite poles, if we could collapse it, then Mm -hmm. we would be together. You know, then that's an, you'd have to think about the image, but there's still a pleasure behind it. It's not that good things don't run complex
0: sometimes, but there has to be work
2: to understand, but
0: there has to be an aha moment somewhere in there. And the
2: aha moment has to actually do the work of making something more clear or more poignant or hit home in a way that it didn't before.
0: A metaphor should always have the moment in the doctor's office in the eye doctor where he switches the thing and suddenly you see the writing clearly.
1: Yes. And it shouldn't be that once you see whatever it's clearly, it's just the doctor's face and you're like, oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> which is what you I. You
2: are mean. such a handsome man. You you know, which is, I all. think
1: that's all that James Joyce was up to. He just wanted everybody yeah. to think, oh, look, James Joyce is brilliant. But never wrote a beautiful word outside of the dead or outside of Dubliners. Dubliners, yeah. There are some other good stories
0: in there. (laughs) Yeah. So, (laughs) to be fair. All right. Question number two. Yeah. What is especially, we've probably already touched on, we'll, we'll, you know, touch all over the place, folks. But what's especially powerful about. Just after using hand sanitizer? Yeah. Just after using hand sanitizer. Six feet, hashtag coronavirus. What's especially powerful
1: about the medium?
0: About literature? Yeah, about literature.
1: Well, yeah, I think that we've we've kind of touched we've on touched, it, touched on this, but just to reiterate, so we've suggested some things too. So first, what's particularly powerful about it is it, is it gives it gives us that felt experience. Mm-hmm. One way that C.S. Lewis explains it is, and I th- I like his explanation, is that it gives us access to ways of thinking and feeling about the world that we would have not had before we read that. And so I feel uh, I see what the world would be like from a immigrant's perspective. In the early 1900s, because I've read my Antonia, Mm -hmm. right, and that's valuable knowledge for me. It just is. It makes you more sympathetic to people, which is something that we should want. It gives you, it gives us more human connection. I mean, these all sound like liberal terms, but these are actually valuable things. And so that's one. And uh, I think our pastor points this out about literature too. Like it says, this is one of the primary important the ways that it's important for us is that it helps us to see the world not so myopically, not so narrow-mindedly. It helps Mm -hmm. us to see the world in a bigger way through other perspectives. And that's really important. I was having a conversation earlier today with some friends about how like with some of these responses to coronavirus, what really bothers me is the old gut reaction of the conservative, like, well, everybody just needs to pick themselves by their bootstraps. Yay, hurrah for capitalism. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, actually, it's not always yay, hurrah for capitalism. There is sometimes we need to be sympathetic to the poor. The Bible actually tells us to be. And you know what? Capitalism can create poverty, Mm -hmm. believe it or not. And sometimes if you read some articles about what it's like to live in the ghetto, grow up in Gary, Indiana, you can't always just work your way out of that situation. Right. Absolutely. And so in literature, when you read things like some of the Harlem Renaissance poets and stuff like that, it helps you begin to realize this, like Claude McKay, he helps you realize what it's like to have been a black man with the threat of being lynched every day of your life. Mm -hmm. And you're like, you white man, who can just lift yourself up by your bootstraps? You don't really have to worry about that. Yeah. And so, anyways, that's just one example that's getting a little bit close. To
0: I read a Being a Liberal. What's the name of Ta Nehisi Coates' book that we read a while back? Between um, the World and Me. Yeah, a letter or... to his son. Um, yeah, what, what's the one with, that's the letter to his? Between that, the world between, and me. He just describes an experience where a white woman shoves his eight year old son out of the way at the supermarket. And he's so, and it almost knocks his son over, almost hurts him. He's so angry. yeah. And he's surrounded by these people and he suddenly looks around and he realizes I'm completely impotent because I can't do anything. They'll see me as the aggressor. I'm the black man. And I don't think I had ever experienced that feeling until I read that. Like I I suddenly understood something.
1: And it helps you. And so when you see it, it makes you more sympathetic to people. It also makes you just it helps you with your discernment in these situations. Like, so with the immigration crisis, you mm. realize that, yes, our government's job is to protect our borders. But you also have to realize that everybody who wants to get over here illegally even is not a monster. That they may have reasons that you have no freedom to judge.
2: The risk of uh, of deportation is well worth it to people or otherwise they wouldn't do it.
1: Yeah. And so, and it's not just... and. So what literature helps you become is it does help you become more sympathetic, which is a good Christian virtue to have, Mm -hmm. to help have sympathy so you can see things through others' perspective, because otherwise you're just going to become a judgmental jerk, uh, jerk, judgmental jerk who always refuses to actually help people by seeing their sin, seeing their weakness and and then actually helping them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, in liberals, academics, they take this way too far and they think that's the only power of literature is in politics. But that is a political, that is a political under, undertone that literature has. It, it makes you into a more humanitarian citizen of the world. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the values of it. Two, I mean, we're talking about aesthetics here. Is it, what was the question?
0: Uh, just what's especially powerful about the medium? What's well, the
1: what's, what's also especially powerful about the medium is that it helps you see the beauty of the world around you, especially with poetry. But with descriptions like, I've, I've already mentioned him, one of my favorite writers is Tolstoy. I love thinking, I love working out in the early morning now because he once wrote about Levin working with his serfs and getting the rain on his back and the sweat and then Mm -hmm. having a meal with them. And it was just, it helps you see the pleasure in things that you might not have seen before. Mm -hmm. The beauty of a walk through the English countryside with Jane Austen, right, and Mansfield Park, all these things. You You mentioned Joyce earlier, the dead. Yeah. That scene snow. at the end
0: where he sees the snow and he realizes it's falling on this man who's died and he suddenly has this weird feeling of my wife has had all these experiences that are completely outside my experience and i can't there are places that i can't enter into yeah. with her and everyone's a stranger to me and the world is full of all these different people and we're all connected yet we're all up it's a hard feeling to even put into words but
1: but the I mean,
0: dead gives that feeling to you it actually it articulates it in a way that
1: throughout my life now, I'll be like, oh, I'm having a, a dead moment. Every time I see snow, I think of right. that. And part of what it's doing there is, I mean, it, that's reflecting what we were just talking about too, is he's learning to be sympathetic to someone he was not mm-hmm. before, right? And he's seeing the world from their eyes. To go back to Pin Warren, the guy I've already referenced, he talks, so he said felt experience. He also says liter- poetry or literature is a way of seeing. Mm-hmm. And so he compares that to the scientific way of seeing in the sense that, you know, the world's just a series of facts. and But he says, no, the world's more than just a series of facts. The world's lived in, the world's felt, the world's understood through human emotions and relationships. And so literature gives that to us. And then the way that we can see, you know, birds and trees and flowers differently because poets have given them to us. Laugh mm-hmm. Like E. E. Cummings, you know. Um, I think of love and my wife and everything differently because he gave me, since feeling is first, mm-hmm. whoever pays too much to the syntax of things will never wholly kiss you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so well, anyway.
0: it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. It's a deep philosophical question. Like, would you actually have those feelings if there weren't? they weren't in some way?
1: I don't think I would have them as for refined you. for me. Yeah. I don't think I would understand them quite as well or yeah, have those I mean, associations.
2: You, I mean, you can take that philosophical question all the way back to. We think in words. Right. Yeah. Right? Like, if we didn't have words, if we were never taught to speak, if our mothers and fathers never spoke to us, what kind of thoughts would we even be capable of thinking? What emotions would we be capable of feeling?
0: If I didn't have a verbal category for anger, yeah, I guess I'd get angry, but what would it be? It'd be a lot different if I didn't actually say, I'm angry right now.
2: Well, and the more... Nuance terms you have for the different kinds of anger or love or passion or if i was just stuck with anger
0: but and i didn't have irritation or fury or any number of categories it would just
1: be a a confused mess wouldn't it Mm -hmm. yeah it would just be this burning that you have you had no words for it
0: Well, and i do have feelings that i don't have words for yeah i had some today that i won't tell you listeners about but sometimes you have feelings that you can't quite put language to and it's a problem it's like a problem that if you're a self-reflective kind of person you want to solve like Mm -hmm. what are the words where can i find the words where in the bible can i find the words that explain what's going on right now because once i put words to them i can articulate them i can therefore understand them and i can be at some peace about them
1: yeah going along with that it helps you see and understand the beauty of words and the beauty of language the sound of words things like that but also then it just helps you. The more I have students read, they always become better writers and thinkers mm-hmm. themselves. And so by reading in words and reading a lot of words that are well-written, sentences that are well-written, paragraphs that are well-structured, all these things, it makes you a better thinker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that should be something that everybody wants. God gave us the word and he gave us the, the one of the powers of language that you talked about earlier, Jake, was ideas. Yeah. and. Even fiction, even poetry helps fine tune that Mm -hmm. understanding a Shakespearean sonnet takes thought, being able to piece those things together, being able to understand what death be not uh, proud by Mm -hmm. John Donne is it takes thought. It takes the ability to piece words together and balance them against thoughts and ideas and actually understand language and argument and. Um, the development of a metaphor. All these things help you to be a more intelligent person. Mm-hmm. So there we yeah. I and mean, I think that would be a third thing to add in there. So, uh,
0: what makes the me- this is question number three? What makes this medium, uh, the medium of literature, yeah. dangerous, if anything?
1: Nothing. one? Oh, it's the be- it's the good yeah, one. This is the good one. There's don't watch dangerous. things.
0: Don't listen to music. Read.
1: No, I mean, so as Dumbledore says. <laughs> <laughs> Words are our most inexhaustible source of magic.
0: (laughs) Yeah, he does say that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which, I mean, there's truth to that in the sense that it can lead to pride, Mm -hmm. obviously. If you just spend all your time thinking about these things and reading these books, it can lead you to pride and vanity Mm -hmm. and to just chasing after the wind, which Mm -hmm. I've had in my own life, where you prioritize these things over things that matter more. And so God has given us literature as a good gift And it is a way to see his world and understand his world and love his world, but it cannot take priority over the other things. Mm
0: -hmm. We talk a lot about that on the bookening.
1: Yeah. Scripture, church. Yeah. I mean, we talk, this is basically what the bookening says Mm -hmm. over and over again is that you can't make idols out of these things. Mm -hmm. God has given them to us as a gift and it's a wonderful gift, but you have to put it in its place. Mm -hmm. And so the other danger would be reading the wrong kind of author's, and so this is the one thing that we talk about on the bookending too, is that since, as I said, literature, so the other power of literature, and this is really any art, but literature in particular, since it's dealing with words and it's dealing with images and it's dealing. So, for example, I cannot walk down a wet, moonlit street at night. It has to be wet and the, and the street lamps have to be on and the moon has to be out. But I, with my wife, not think about Langston Hughes, wonderful mm-hmm. poem, Harlem Night Song. Mm-hmm. It gives you ways of thinking about the world. They can also then be dangerous if you have these metaphors that are always in your mind, Mm -hmm. because then it can also ruin things for you, right? It can corrupt your pleasures. It can corrupt your taste, just like pornography or anything like that. And so if you give yourselves to Nietzsche, guess what? Nietzsche is going to sour things. He's going to corrupt a part of the way that you think about the world. And people think that they can just talk, people think they can just read these things and not be corrupted and just, you know, not have words and not have authors shape the way that they feel about the world. Mm -hmm. And if they don't think that's serious business, then they've never understood the scripture that says, whatever is pure, whatever is true, whatever is profitable, think on these things, right? If a man sows
2: to the flesh, he will from the flesh reap corruption. Mm -hmm. If a man Mm -hmm. sows to the spirit, he will from
1: the spirit reap life. Yeah. And so... It's interesting because I think that you can corrupt yourself very easily with literature by Mm -hmm. reading the wrong things, but it seems like it's easier since it's also dealing with ideas and words and argument. You can also then fight against that by just eventually in your life, reading things that inoculate against it. Yeah. Right. So I read a lot of Nietzsche and stuff, but I finally read my CS Lewis and other guys like that that helped fight against Nietzsche and realize that Nietzsche's... Stupid. Bunch of baloney. Yep. But you know what's really hard to get rid of are all the images that I looked at that I never should mm. have. Yeah. But that's because that's flesh, and so I do think that that's actually a struggle that cinema is going to have. That literature is a little bit more fortified against. You know, that's interesting. I I agree with you on one in, in uh
0: one sense, but I personally, maybe this isn't universal, but I have found that things like cinema, visual things, pornography, visual pornography, mm-hmm. certainly much easier for it to quickly corrupt me. You know, I can walk past a billboard with a uh, scantily clad lady on it and I can be corrupted by that in a second. Whereas I can't pick up a book and instantly be corrupted by it in that same way. But the corruption that's happened to me through the written word, the corruption that I've given myself, the places where I've sowed the flesh with the written word has been much more damaging and deeper and longer lasting. You know, in other words... If I remember the pornography of my youth, personally, I don't actually remember images. I remember phrases. I remember erotica. I remember ideas. I remember certain written things. I'm not saying I, I never remember images, and Lord willing, I don't remember much of it. Yeah. But the things, the words that have corrupted me has left, in my life at least, much la- much more lasting scars than yeah. the images. No, I see what um, you're saying.
1: It's, and so... That's because literature and words like that, they get at your.
2: What's the intrinsic power of the medium? Yes, exactly. It's everything good we said about it. It is why God's word is the word. Mm -hmm. It's because it can get in deep down. Yeah. Right. And words have a, a way of doing that, of getting in deep down and affecting and changing and shaping you in a way that no other medium really can. Now, when you pair those words with other mediums. Right oh, they can become really...
0: Right, I am not saying that music and movies and everything else can't be deeply corrupting.
2: But it is only that music and movies become most effective when they add the
0: word to what -hmm. they're doing.
2: And the word in and of itself can be very corrupting or very Mm life-giving. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's almost like the word does require, as I said earlier, a bit of work on your part. Like you're exercising muscles you're exercising your imagination, and just like exercising physical muscles, you build muscles you know you you leave scars, you you change something about your body that's intrinsic mm-hmm. you change something you, the written word can it is deeply involved with how you think. I mean it is just everything we said that was powerful about it. It leaves scars on your mind, and it trains your mind. I think. I think if you read, for example, to use an extreme example, if you read erotica, if you read Fifty Shades of Grey, let's say, uh, since that was a thing ten years ago, you are entering into intercourse, ho ho, with the author more than if you watch the movie. Like you're bringing your own imagination to bear. You're you're doing more work. You
2: are actively engaged in a very conscious sort of way. Right. When you every moment through the course of a book you are choosing to continue reading you're choosing to continue to dwell, imagining and remembering imagine, to remember to all of these things you are
0: actively engaged in and doing all of these things and because the process is more active it's more lasting i think oftentimes than cinema Well, yeah than, you're
2: doing a thing it's like y- you know it's hands-on learning mm-hmm. in a sense yeah, right Yeah really but it's hands-on learning for your mind whereas you're watching a a movie, yeah, at any moment, you could reach over and grab the control and hit stop, but you're passively taking it in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're combining it It is working on you and it is shaping you and we're not in any way trying to diminish the effect. But as powerful as that is, it's not the same thing as just the act of engagement that comes with- really reading something and giving yourself over to it active
0: engagement plus instinctual choices based on like if i read 50 shades of gray which i haven't by the way if anyone was wondering and they and it says what's her face was beautiful i can imagine whatever i i can bring all of my imaginative faculties to bear to create my beautiful
1: mm-hmm, you know right.
0: i can do something very objective and something very subjective at the same time and i can combine those two things in some in a very potent way that can be much longer lasting yeah. than you know whatever actress they chose to play the 50 shades character again yeah, whatever
2: actress they pick is going to have her flaws or going to have her
0: or just not be nathan's type or, right. or or whatever and it's not that that's not wicked of course that's not what we're saying but literature has a way of seeping through the cracks of getting under the door that yeah i don't think any other medium comes close for me at least
1: well i think it's because what we were, what we were saying earlier it's this way of seeing, way of experiencing the world that gets deep down into the DNA, the foundational principles of the way that you, like your assumptions, your, mm-hmm. and so the, you know, there are things that you f- go about life thinking and feeling that you never question. And literature can really kind of just completely switch those things for you. It can make those things uh, become corrupted completely mm-hmm. and you don't even realize it. Right. And so sudden, and that's one of the powers of it. That's one of the powers of language and ideas and thoughts in our, Presuppositions, all those right. sorts of things, and so, so in that sense, cinema is more voyeuristic, but literature is more like experiential. Well,
0: if I was going to generalize, I'd say cinema has one really powerful tool at its disposal. It has the written word, actually, but it all which it combines with its other tool, which is the human face. I mean, yeah. cinema just simply has the human face, and that's a powerful tool for evoking empathy. Yeah, but literature, while it doesn't quite have that. It has so many other things. It has so many other tools, so many other ways in. It can evoke the human mind, the human experience, the human thoughts yep. in ways that cinema can never approach. Yeah, Cinema can evoke an emotion quicker. You know, a Coke commercial can get me in 60 seconds. You know, if it's one of those dramatic, yay, raw American ones that they do around the Super Bowl time, it can get me in 60 seconds, whereas reading for 60 seconds won't get me but unless it's the right poem, unless it's the right poem or the right Hemingway story, hashtag, whatever that story is called. Hills with white, Uh, Hills hills like white elephants. Hills like white elephants.
2: It's a little more than 60 seconds. So
0: (laughs) it is. Well, when you read as fast as I do, Jake, um, a really fast reader guys. (laughs) (laughs) It's famous about me.
1: Autumn comes to um, Milton's ferry, Ohio, whatever that is. The fathers and the football players. What's
0: the name of the author of that? James Wright.
1: James Wright. That's right.
0: Uh Question number four, Brennan. Yeah. And Jake, how do you use this medium? The medium of literature, yeah, in a way that honors God and serves people. What is the proper use of literature? And my next question, spoiler alert, will be what is the improper use of it?
1: Well, I think we've been tiptoeing around it, anyways. So Mm -hmm. this is these both questions four and five are proper and improper use of it. Yeah. Well, I think that the proper use of it would be to do exactly what the good things that literature does. Well, do those things well, and so give people a sense of this felt experience, this kinship that they have with other people that they wouldn't have had without that book. Do it with good style, do it with good writing, preferably. Mm -hmm. Do it in a way that's engaging and vivid and alive. So when we're talking about improper, two ways of thinking about it. One, immoral and Mm -hmm. one, just bad taste. Right. Both of those, you have to consider both of those for aesthetics because you can have good style and it still be immoral. Right.
2: In which case, it's still bad taste.
1: It's still bad taste. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you wouldn't think of it as bad taste, or people wouldn't, right? Some people would try to argue it's not absolutely. So some of the Dubliners' content
2: is intrinsic to good taste. Yeah, Mm -hmm.
1: and so some James Joyce, uh, some of those James Joyce stories in the Dubliners, right? They're well written, but they're still bad morals, right? Yeah, and also uh, another proper use of it is to help people take delight in the world that God has created, Mm. and I do think that's one of the powers of literature and especially poetry people underrate poetry but it it helps you to see the whole range of feelings so like you were saying earlier there are all these feelings that some of well, sometimes we don't have words for and a lot of men guess what they're pretty unattuned to their romantic feelings that maybe their wife would appreciate they become a little bit more attuned to mm-hmm. and Shakespeare's sonnets some good love poems by E. e. Cummings mm-hmm. they can help you there yeah so, your wife might not particularly like want you to quote them to her. No. But she definitely wouldn't mind you having the feelings that those things can help you realize or in you.
2: Express them in your own special cheesy or non-cheesy yeah. way.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. But just realizing that. So, it can, it can do that for you. It can help you realize that some of your machismo is just stupid. And not just that. Uh, other feelings. that And so, it gives you, in other words, it gives you the whole range of palette of the, of the world that God's created. And helps you to take delight in small things too. There's just parts of the the universe that is all around us. Right. And I mean, I know this all sounds a little cheesy, but it's just, it's part of what
0: literature does. I mean, if we've discovered anything in the bookening, it's, it's that. And especially the appreciation that literature gives you for the variety and the silliness and the monstrosity of human nature. Yeah. I think like, that's what we love. All our favorite authors on the bookening are, they're Tolstoy. They're Jane Austen, they're Shakespeare. Shakespeare. They're people that show us human nature in all its
1: glory and all its variety and all its good and bad and everything in between. And so that's that's the other proper use is you can actually shape the way that people – you can shape people's tastes, which should be something that Christians want to do but don't often actually want to do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Let's – it's the
2: closest to the trifecta, right? You can shape yeah. their tastes, you can shape their feeling, and you can shape their thoughts. Yeah. Music can shape feelings. Yep. But it can't really shape your thoughts.
0: Not well at least. Not yep. well.
2: But when it comes to one medium that can do it all, the words at the top. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. And so that's the that's it's that's the proper use of it then would be to be intentional about that and not be moralistic and not try to be like those stories like that are Always have a point. Always mm-hmm. have a have a moral that's obvious and clear
0: at the end. I think when we first started the booking, which was five years now, ago now, if you can believe that, I I don't know how I would have articulated this at the time, but I think I always thought that literature was bad if it was didactic. Yeah, and what I've realized is it's bad if it's poorly written and it's didactic. But actually, all literature—I think what Every, we've come to realize—is yeah. all literature is inescapably didactic.
1: Every all book art- you read. Yeah, all art is, is, yeah. Because that's, I mean, that's why I think the whole author is dead. Arguments are just nonsense because why we enjoy art is because the art is giving us the world through the perspective of the artist. And that means you have to take seriously the artist who's giving you that perspective. If you don't, then you fall prey to any sort of wolfish manipulations they might have there Mm -hmm. or even unintentional manipulations they might have. And so even the great writers are going to do it. Like Shakespeare, as great as he is, he still loved his body poem, uh, puns, right? B-A-W-D-Y, folks. Yeah. And so you, just, you have I to, if you're really going to study Shakespeare and understand what he's saying, sometimes it's going to be scandalous. He was crass. He man. was very crass. He was a vulgar man. He was a very vulgar. Mm-hmm. People don't realize how vulgar he could be, but he can be very vulgar. And so- yeah.
2: You have to be in context to really understand it. But you Sometimes
1: do. you'll read the
0: content, you know, you'll get Brandon's dumb Aspen edition or what was that? Um, Arden, yeah. you Asperger. mean the amazing Arden the, the edition? The Asperger's edition, yeah. yeah you'll Asperger. get the Ashburgers edition and it'll have one line and it'll have 9,000 lines of explanation and you'll read the 9,000 lines of explanation and then you'll be like,
1: oh Whoa. boy. And if you still after Sheesh. reading 9,000 lines, have on. the ability to feel scandalized. Yeah. You feel scandalized. Right. <laughs> You're like, why did well, Brandon give the Ashburgers edition? <laughs> I feel dirty now. <laughs> I could have lived in ignorant
0: bliss. Yeah. That's why I don't want to be the only one. <laughs> yeah. Brandon's like.
2: Uh, you can only see what I see. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so let's address question number five a little bit
1: more. Wait, wait. How, wait I had wait,
2: another thought, but yeah, I please. forgot what it was. Where was that headed?
1: Where was what headed? Art is inescapably didactic. Um, oh, the world, the, it's always through the artist's perspective, and that's inescapable. Yet we want to think that it's escapable. We want to think that. We- so what, what people want with art is they want to be able to just have their cake and eat it too. Mm-hmm. They want to just be able to say, I'm just watching it. The- I'm just reading this book because it's just empty calories, Mm. but they don't realize that even the the empty calories, Agatha Christie is still teaching you to see the world through Agatha Christie's perspective. It's an innocent one enough. She's not going to do much damage to you, but she's still training the way that you feel and think about what you do with your spare time.
0: Yeah. Right? I mean- Mm -hmm. The cat in the hat has so much to say about- uh, a, a boy's role, a woman, a girl's role, the the role of a cat causing anarchy. I mean, yeah. I'm, maybe I'm being a little silly, but I don't think I am actually. Like Dick and Jane is making uh, propositional. Is that what I want? It's making statements about the reality of the yeah. world as the author of Dick and Jane sees the world.
1: Yeah. And, and these can be very innocent, just straightforward, not much to it perspectives, but there's still perspectives that you have to, and if you're not willing to take these and seriously. it is,
2: you can't escape your sense of taste, uh, the the link between your sense of taste and your moral outlook. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? And so, either the things that you like will shape the way that you think morally about the world or your morals will shape your taste. But that's just the truth. And it is why the Poetry Foundation can publish a comic strip with one word pieces of nonsense under it from some transgender person. And it's because taste is inextricably bound to your moral point of view. Yeah. And if you have your taste shaped by God's word, by God's character, then it is going to differ from the things that people in this world love. And if you have your taste shaped by, you know, the world, it's going to lead you astray.
1: Yeah. No, that's right. And that's where you get into the improper use is that one of the improper uses would be to just give yourself to anything without any discernment, which- Mm -hmm. Or to go at to go at something thinking that just because you're going to approach it with it's just a book that it's not going to have any it's not going to shape you at all Mm -hmm. and so like this so this can be very simplistic with people like who just decide ah you know what's Twilight going to damage me it's just a stupid book I'm just going to read it or what's this Stephen King novel going to do it's just it's just fun right it's Mm -hmm. not going to do anything to me whether or not you want to admit it it's going to do something to you you can't escape that. It's going to become a part of you. It's going to be something that you gave your pleasures to. I think that this is especially a reformed problem. And also with, uh, we talk a lot about education, like classical education and stuff. It, those often go hand in hand anyways, homeschooling mentalities that we somehow think that our brains completely control our emotions. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like we think that our brains are so set on doctrine and the truths of, a good, solid education, Western education, that they can't be manipulated by our feelings.
0: So, for example, I could watch a movie that's telling me with its music, with its imagery, with its storyline that fornication is good. But I know, biblically, fornication is bad, so it won't do anything
1: to me. But we don't realize that emotions are very sneaky, and they let our brains think that while actually running the game. Mm -hmm. And if you don't take that seriously, then you just don't really know yourself.
0: Yeah. And I I never know how to convince young people of this, because I just don't know. I despair of it. Because... All I can say is in my life, I thought that, I thought that I was better than my, my feelings. Yeah. I thought my thoughts were, we going to win. And yeah. over time I saw they didn't win. I actually did reap. I sowed to the flesh and I well, reaped to it and it was devastating.
1: Just think how many times you get set on some like principle in your life. And then you realize later on after time has passed that actually anger and bitterness and jealousy and all those sorts of things were kind of bolstering up that. Mm-hmm opinion you had or but it was a principle at that point right and then mm-hmm. you know some of us get so far along with that that we can't ever accept it but let's well, just take, take a really really simple example i know
0: that i shouldn't eat too many sweets but man i'd rather eat m&ms right now than not eat m&ms because they taste good yeah it's like and because advertisers tell me that m&ms taste good like these things actually the way that you feel about i don't know
1: yeah and so that's one of the most that's The improper uses of it would be to just give yourself to anything without any discernment. You have to have wisdom in what you read. You can't just read everything. You have to know your limitations. You have to know what to you is sacrificed meat. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then the other improper use, that was a question, right? What's the improper use like? So, uh, we're thinking about, I'm thinking of this from the perspective of what you do as a reader right now. Yeah other improper use would be to make it into an idol, to make it into something that's going to save the world. You're not going to save the world through literature. God can use it despite you. I actually think that in a weird way, he used my finding Tolstoy instead of Dostoevsky to eventually 10 years later save me. Hmm. (laughs) But I mean, it was a long road and he did, but Tolstoy never intended that. Yeah, you can't therefore worship Tolstoy. Yeah, and then the other thing would be for writers, is they can't, they have to take their responsibility as authors both seriously and not so seriously, right? Does that make So they have to realize that they're craftsmen who have been given a gift and a talent and to use it in a way that actually honors and pleases God. Hmm. And so I would love to see Christian writers doing that again. Yeah. But I don't know if there are any out there that really do it very well. Dennis Johnson thought he was, but he was just crazy. <laughs> <Most> people
0: <laughs> claim Christ. <laughs> so, anyways. All right. Final two questions. Yeah. Um, These might be short ones. They might be long ones. I don't know. So question number six, if you could say one thing, Brandon, to any aspiring practitioner of the medium. Yeah. What would you say? And my next question, just so you know where we're going is to any partaker, but we'll get there. First, I want to ask practitioner,
1: any practitioner, Um, What's
0: the one thing the aspiring writers, I guess in this case should know.
1: Yeah. um, I know exactly what I'm going to say. And you probably guys could probably guess what I would say on the book ending. We talk a lot about the difference between genius and craft. Mm-hmm. Anybody out there who thinks that you're just a misunderstood genius, get over yourself. Anybody out there who who wants to be a writer but just doesn't think you quite have the talent yet, start writing. Mm-hmm. And that's the point is that the only way that you develop your talent is to realize that this is a craft and that it's an actual skill that requires practice and devotion to it. And the only way you get better at it is by doing it. That might seem cliched, but it's the thing that I've seen. Ernest Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Faulkner, Kazuo Ishiguro, Salman Rushdie, all these famous writers, uh, Tolstoy, Charles Dickens, all of these guys we know had drafts, Mm -hmm. and we know that they were hard workers. And Mm -hmm. so if you want to be a practitioner, you got to practice, you got to do it. And that means that you then you have to give yourself humbly to criticism and to reading people who are better than you, or at least people who are doing what you want to do right? Maybe it's not that they're better talent wise in the end, but they figured out how to do it. And so you got to learn from them.
0: They spent 70 years on it. Yeah, and exactly. And so two.
1: and so you have to give yourself to the hard work of learning how to do the craft. And there's stuff that goes into that in practice, comparison to others, learning the, the, the principles that they had, finding out what works for you, what doesn't, all those things. But just in other words, don't just trust on the inspiration of the muses. That's just a bunch Mm -hmm. of malarkey.
0: Well, people looking from the outside in tend to assume that because something is simple, it is therefore intuitive, and is therefore easy. Yeah. So David said that the Lord is my shepherd. Well, duh, that must have been easy to come up with. Yeah. How many drafts might David have gone through? Like, what's the perfect metaphor? Like to get there, to get to something that simple, that seemingly intuitive could take weeks, could take hours, could take... Months of well, thought.
1: My, my favorite advice to give a young writer is actually a Yeats line. Mm-hmm. A line may take us hours perhaps. And yet if it does not seem a moment's thought, our stitchings and unstitchings have been not. In other words, um, you might spend days, hours on just one line of poetry. And yet if it doesn't seem like you just came up with it like that, then who cares? Right. Your work is useless. Mm. And so that's the hard work that goes into it. And he's just pointing out the fact that Yeats. One of the great modernist, early modernist poets spent hours on one line. Yeah, and so don't think that sweat, that that fan, that old cliche like geniuses, what one percent inspiration and ninety nine percent sweat or whatever perspiration, yeah. perspiration. Yeah, this from what I've seen, it's true. I think it's true. I believe in it. Sometimes yeah.
0: I'm tempted to say a hundred percent, but then I have to make a little space for the.
1: I mean, there is actual genius. The spark. There is actual, you know, yeah. But a lot of people who have the spark will never write anything good because they just would not. You know, do the work. Put on their pants and do the work. Yeah. Or they would just get so anxious and about it, and they just wouldn't write anything. And so there are people out there who don't have as much talent who are actually producing things. Mm-hmm. And now then you also have people who are talented and they do it, but they don't want to put the hard work into making it good as it could be. One of the famous examples we have is J.K. Rowling. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: She's actually got the talent, clearly capable
0: of writing at a higher level than she generally does in those books.
1: And for storytelling, she's got that one percent. Of brilliant storytelling. Mm-hmm. I mean yep. she's like she she's knows great. she knows how to do it. Yeah. But she just would not commit herself to learning how to write. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyways, that's that or would be my advice. There's a
2: modern system yeah, that, that
0: you know allows or even encourages that kind of mediocrity because yeah. it's less challenging for some
1: a certain type of reader or
0: for a certain yeah. type of buyer.
1: But if anybody wants to be encouraged <laughs> yeah, it's
2: bottom line.
0: Yep. Yeah.
1: Maybe I know that maybe some of our listeners, well, you know what? Actually of all the modern writers, this guy, if I actually recommend him to people, they all love him. Mm-hmm. So was, that's been my experience so far, which is Kazuo Ishiguro. Mm-hmm. People like him. Yeah. I've gotten a but, lot of good feedback yeah, on our he's really great. Mm-hmm. And, but if you go and you listen, you go listen to some, so anybody who wants to be a writer, go listen to his story about how he became a writer for one. He didn't, he had to work to get there. He wasn't just automatically respected he wasn't any really any good for a while. He had to work and he had to work and he had to work. And he, even to this day, when he's writing a novel, he'll like shut himself up for eight hours and he'll write and he'll write and he'll write. He said, he'll get drafts that he'll never let anybody see except his wife because he's so ashamed of them. And he'll go and he'll cut and he'll cut and he'll cut and he'll write and rewrite until finally he gets the gems that he gives to us, but it only comes after lots and lots of work. So anyways. Yeah, I yeah, believe that so strongly. And guess what? But People who think that they can just spit out good stories usually doesn't. They work. never can. I've got. A, uh, this is usually the. I wanted to be that way when I was young, mm, and me too. most of it was garbage. Mm-hmm. It is the dictionary
2: Amen. definition of sophomoreic. Yeah, yeah. It really and is. And so, yeah. and
1: I've got students that might think that, and I would just encourage those students to quit thinking that and actually listen to what I'm telling you, right? And go back and rewrite and rewrite and make it better.
0: Well, the obnoxious thing is that oftentimes the student or the young person that has an ounce of talent will think that they can coast on that or want to coast on that or in fact be able to coast on that. And it's like, no, you're the exact person that needs to actually work. You
2: will do nothing in life.
1: And then get their butts kicked. Can Mm -hmm. I say that? Yeah, sure. By the one person who just happened to have a good thing to say Mm -hmm. and wanted to put the work in and to making that essay work and ended up outriding them. And we all have... We know. I mean, you guys remember. You don't remember what I'm talking That's about. That's what life is. Yeah. We had this experience with one student. Oh, yeah. We yeah. all taught together. That student thought that they were the bee's knees.
0: I, I think and we can yeah. actually talk about that. We won't say names, but I think we can actually talk about that here. And the, the fascinating thing about that is we actually had two yeah. st- uh, students in that situation. And one of them had a lot more natural talent. And one of them, the other one, consistently turned in. Much better, better, work. much better work because she, the other one
1: was just kind of cheerful and sweet and did the work and she was willing to listen to criticism and mm-hmm. so the whole idea was it's a writer's workshop and so she would go and she would change things and it would get better and it would get better and then finally there was one day where the essay she was writing became better mm-hmm. than the one by the person with natural talent like by a mile yeah absolutely and so
0: the person with natural talent was pretty irritated by that yeah it was just like
1: well they showed no progress over
2: the course of A semester.
0: Right. Yeah. But it's
2: fine. Right. Because they didn't want to listen to criticism.
1: Precisely so. Guess what? Put in the work. Mm -hmm. Apparently, it doesn't matter what we think because this person is going to go off and find their inspiration. So good luck.
0: Good luck. All right. Final question. Yeah. If you could say one thing to any partaker, (gasps) this has been the whole podcast, really, but if you could say one thing to any partaker
1: of the medium of literature, what would you say? Yeah. I think that it's exactly what we said with the improper use Mm -hmm. that be aware. Of the value of literature is that if you give yourself to it, it will shape the way you see the world. And it is a good gift in the sense that it's going to train you and your tastes to have pleasure. It's going to sound cheesy, but pleasures galore mm-hmm. that you never realized you could have. So many delights, so many wonders in the world that you won't have unless you give yourself to reading. And there's so many things to the to the world that you just don't have access to unless you allow yourself to read fiction like this. mm mm-hmm. That doesn't mean your life's gonna be worthless if you don't, but it is a gift and if you have time for it and give yourself to it, it's great. And then the opposite of that would be if you're the kind who's just tempted then to think that, you know, you're above that, or you can just read whatever because you have the ability to stop it, or you have the ability to, you know, watch Fight Club and or what or read lots of Dostoevsky or read lots of Nietzsche and it not corrupt you and it not affect the way you think about things, and it not make you into a depressed, dark young man who only can think about total depravity, mm-hmm. then you need to mature and get out of that mindset because it can corrupt, and it is a very, very subtle corruption that you will not notice until it's already so deeply rooted into your DNA There, there's really nothing you can do except pray for God to forgive and break your heart. Yep. So
0: It's like cigarettes. I won't get addicted. Oh, yep, now I'm addicted. Like you'll never realize how potent it is until it's too late, uh, Jake. What what would your answer be to if you could say anything to one or, or any one thing to to readers? One piece of advice to someone's like I want to be a better reader. What would you What would you say?
2: This is advice that I very rarely follow when it comes to fiction, hmm. but I do when it comes to nonfiction, and that's read with a pencil in your hand.
0: Care to elaborate?
2: Oh, did you want me to explain?
0: <laughs> no, he just means. Uh, I read just, it, just hold head. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go to sleep with it.
2: I, I read Mortimer Adler, um, mm-hmm. his How to Read a Book. It's a good book. Um, uh, back while I was doing an internship in Mississippi probably 10, 15 years ago. I don't know how long ago it was. His whole shtick in my mind, the one thing that I learned from that book is the book, the artifact, means nothing. It's only what you can take from it, what you can get out of it. And so use it that way. Be active and engaged mm. with everything you read. The point is to improve yourself. The point is to be moved, to understand more, to see the world in a different way, to have your mind and your thinking challenged, to grow. And the only way to do that is to be actively engaged. And so don't read passively. And one of the best ways to not read passively, and I had a big hangup about this before, was to just be willing to mark the crap out of your book to dog ear it, to whatever. I would never. I wanted, by the time I got done with the book, for it to be as, in as near pristine condition as when I started it. And he was like, come on, man. No. Well,
0: what I do, because I've never under overcame that, is A, either I get the trashiest paperbacks I can so that it's just like, well, this is already crap, so I might as well it Devour it. Devour it. I actually prefer that. I feel much more comfortable than if I have a nice hardback copy of something that it's like, I can't crease the spine. that can cons- in right. some ways decrease my enjoyment and the nutrition I get out of the book. But the other thing I'll do is I'll just do whatever it takes. I'll take pictures on my phone and put them in my notes app. Yeah. I'll I'll just do things like that that allow me to capture it somehow.
2: Yeah. Yeah, reading in the, as engaged a way as possible. Mm. That's what you want to do. You know, he he encourages you to write down like in the margin, you know, to to speak to the author. I disagree. I'm not sure that's right. I don't understand even things like that that are just you trying to work your way through and be sure you really understand what they're trying to say before you either accept it or reject it or absentmindedly think it's going to wash over you and not affect you. Engage it all in a conscious way. Mm-hmm. So uh, for readers, I think every step that you can take to encourage yourself to be an active, engaged, non-passive reader. And so that's that's my sort of. Jordan Peterson-esque, read mm-hmm. with a pencil in your hand yeah. is my like- A pencil of light. A, 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 is that something he uses?
0: He, has, he had a pen of light at
2: the uh, end of the That's right. I forgot. Um, I was, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, read with a pencil in your hand. Engage. Really engage. Mm-hmm. And come away with something. Yeah. don't Don't just escape. Don't just be entertained. Go ahead and escape a little bit here and there. Go ahead and be entertained. But try to come away with something more.
0: Well, my little piece of advice for that is, if you aim to come away with something rather than everything, you'll probably be a lot more successful. At least I will, because I'm a dummy. So it's like, I'm going to remember two things from this. To me, that's a much more helpful uh, paradigm to approach a book with than, well, I've got to remember every chapter and remember the three things. Like If I make it too hard for myself, it won't be nearly as effective as if I just say, okay, you know what? This book was made for me, not me for this book. What is... The one thing. What is the two thing? Okay, it's Jane Austen. She's a genius. What are the twenty things that I want to but walk it's, away but it's and Johnny have? Johnny Yeah.
2: What's the one thing?
0: It's about the Revolutionary War. Okay, that's a joke. But you know what I mean? Like Johnny's a jerk or actually with Johnny Tremaine, it would be something that you mentioned in private conversation the other day, which is that yeah. book does a really good job of uh capturing the, tension. the the tension and the moral ambiguity of actually this revolution was fought dirty and
2: Yeah, and as George Lucas might say, there were heroes on all sides there were heroes on both sides,
0: yeah, Johnny Tremaine yeah. does a good job with that. Some of the British were nice, some of them let Johnny Tremaine ride their horse. Some of the uh, guy,
2: some of the the patriots, the revolutionaries were were just nasty, evil, bloodthirsty nasty people people and it was uh you know, principles had to overcome relationships mm-hmm. and or did they, and it was just not clean in any way, and there are things to feel bad about on all sides. Right. And yeah, that's something that I think part of the complexity of Johnny Tremaine that makes it difficult for the fifth grader when they try to read it. Like the you know, we'll talk about this on the booking, but part of the problem why I think everybody hates Johnny Tremaine is it gets forced on you when you're in fifth grade and it's got all of this moral ambiguity, all this moral complexity, and all of this vocabulary and content.
0: Yeah, there's this world.
2: Romance even that mm-hmm. is just so far grader, beyond yeah. your ten year old mind, like what in the world are teachers doing forcing this on you at the age of ten? the age of thirteen or fourteen? it's an entirely different book
0: yeah, absolutely, yeah, it's this weird book. it has like a small window where it's the perfect level of maturity for you like if you and it gets
2: pushed on you too early, and you know to some degree i I'm okay with that like you gotta challenge kids to go beyond themselves, mm-hmm. and there's a time to do that, and I guess Johnny Tremaine gets to be the scapegoat, you know it gets to be the 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 sacrificial lamb right. that is like, here's the here's the good book that will be sacrificed on the altar of forcing you beyond yourself. You will irrationally hate this for the rest of your life, but actually it's a good book. Uh, it's these ambitious fifth grade teachers that are like they got they went back and were like, I hated this as a kid. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is really great. I'm gonna teach all this moral ambiguity to my fifth grade. No, you won't. Nope. They're fifth graders. And they don't gonna get, get more Give Lambo them Tolkien. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> give them Lewis. Dark, light, right, wrong. Oh, yep. yep. Bad guys, good guys.
0: I think my one piece of advice for readers, well, I think actually first I would give both of the pieces of advice that you guys did, but since I have to come up with a different one, I'm going to say find a couple stars to navigate by. And what I mean by that is have some fixed points. Have a couple authors that you just love and you believe in yep. and make sure they're good. Like vet them a little bit. But like for me, it's Jane Austen it's shakespeare it's like there's there's some known quantities and i've and i've spent more time digesting those giving myself to those letting those things inform me and inform your taste and inform my taste so that when i read other things i'm like well it's not as funny as jane austen so i guess it's failing I mean, really, honestly, yep. it makes me a little bit of a jerk sometimes, but I think you can do you don't worse. Say. You don't say. Yeah. I mean, Jake's like, sometimes Jake's like, well, sorry, Nathan, that the movie didn't have dialogue like Raymond Chandler. It wasn't supposed to. And I'm like, but it could have. <laughs> if only they had the talent. Right. <laughs> if only they had the talent. So you could take this too far, and I, I will admit that I have, and I think I've mellowed a little bit in my old age like not 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 every novel has to have the inside of novelist has to have the inside of jane austen not every marvel movie has to have the inside of jane austen okay fine but i still think you can do worse than having a north star of yep. some type or a couple you know yeah. some stars that you navigate by austin like,
2: tolstoy Shakespeare. yeah really That's you should right. just
0: probably go with those but one way or another maybe another way of saying it is you will have some stars that you navigate by so choose them carefully yep. yeah yeah don't if your star is R. 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 harry <laughs> potter yeah or errol stein but for a lot of people actually it probably is of harry a generation potter. harry yeah. potter like my the book has to live up to this or live down to this and if it doesn't do this then i'm not happy
1: and yeah like, and that's that's a problem the yeah. book has to live down to something <laughs> right <laughs> and you don't and that's a bigger problem when you don't realize it's you're forcing it to do that mm-hmm. and so then you get into all sorts of strange conundrums so yeah well, Brandon,
2: and my 12-year-old has yeah. read a lot of Harry Potter and we're reading The Lord of the Rings out yeah. loud right mm-hmm. now for the first time. And he's like, all the time, he's like, oh, that's where. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's, yeah like, that's right. he's like, that's right. He's like, he's oh, the Dementors. Yeah. I see where those are for. Oh, the right. this. Oh, the that. Yeah, oh, the thing. Yeah. Oh, the
1: whatever. For example, with the bookening, I've had to both come to terms with, in a sense, but not completely give up a nostalgia for Dickens. Mm-hmm. I really like Dickens a lot, but I also realize that a lot of that's nostalgia and that Dickens is not as discerning or good as Austin or mm-hmm. Tolstoy. He doesn't live up to those standards. And so so there's a problem when then you take that nostalgia. I know certain people who have like books they really loved when they were young, mm-hmm. but they're unwilling to give them up after it's very clear that they don't have the ability to live up to the standards of these other things that are living in the...
0: Well, for you, you know, That that's almost an example of... Like you found a uh, star to navigate, if we're going to use my metaphor, and it was fine, you know, yeah. it helped you steer your ship. But at a certain point, someone was like, "Hey, Brandon, we've got sonar, yeah. we've got radar now. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> you don't actually need the North Star." Yeah, <laughs> and you're like, "It's still pretty great." <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, but you know, it's still the North Star. It's still the, but you yeah. <laughs> go yeah. GPS, man. Yeah. GPS, <laughs> Let's baby. Move on. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah, but but I almost want to say, It's how fast you're going. Yeah, but you didn't do wrong. I think what I almost want to say is choose somebody and do the best you can. You know, that's find right. an anchor point, find a foundation, don't and make it R.L. True. Stein.
2: Yeah, this is true in lots of disciplines. It's why you hear certain pastors or theologians say, hey, pick a pick a theologian mm-hmm. and really devour him and get him in your head deep and make him your north star, make him your starting point. And still read broadly, but find somebody that's better than you and just go deep, deep, deep. You know, John Piper says this about Jonathan Edwards. Well- and Tim Bailey says it about John Calvin
0: Yeah, and- Well, I think a lot of people have the exact Brandon experience of, you know, start with Dickens and then one day it's like, oh crap, Tolstoy. So I think a lot of people, it's like, it. yeah. I'm gonna anchor myself in Lewis or Piper or whoever, some modern guy, and, and, then, and I'm gonna and devour that. In the
2: process of that, you realize, mm-hmm.
0: oh. There's something- Edwards, a deeper Calvin, I mean, whatever. I you, know, yeah. you yeah. know, my path was
2: very much Piper. Oh no, Edwards. Oh no, Calvin. Right. But right. if you'd been
0: too snotty to ever let uh, the the star of of Piper guide you, you never would have made it to Calvin. Exactly. And right. so find a point to navigate yeah. by first, and
1: you know, let's hope it's not
0: Bethmore. Whatever. And then also, that is, you know,
1: there is a form of humility, and then just admitting that your original north star is not. So there's a humility in accepting you need a north star, mm-hmm. and then also a humility in realizing, oh well, that north star is no longer right. That actually was, you know, this star over here. Here's north star. No. But the fact
0: is young Brandon needed Dickens to get him to so many different islands and adventures. Yes. Like he needed to travel by that star and that's then
1: right. he needed to. So I'm agreeing with you, yeah. but I'm also saying then certain people then can just cling on to that and never let it go. Precisely. Yeah. And so realize that. T.S. Lewis is always going to be my guy. The whole guy. point yeah. is to grow and mature. Yes. Yeah. That's, right? that's what I was thinking is that we have a whole discussion about this with Lewis that we've made not yep. many friends over. A, a lot of people get stuck there
0: and. A lot of my friends, I mean, and, and and me at a certain point, and people get stuck on Lewis. Tolstoy actually is interesting. Or not Tolstoy. I always do this. Okay. Which one of you mentioned Tolkien? Tolkien is such a all-purpose, all-devouring reference point that many people never get past him, and it's fine. Like Tolkien actually did pretty much everything that you needed to do in the fantasy genre, and a lot of people don't actually need anything else. Yeah, like That's all they want that's fine. that's fine. Yeah.
1: I think for, I mean, if that's what you want is fantasy, then you really aren't going wrong if that's where you stay. Yeah. That's been, that's what I'm discovering. Yeah. So
0: Well, we'll have a, we'll have plenty of opportunity to talk about this when we get to Dune later this year. (laughs) Oh boy. I forgot we're doing that. (laughs) I love Dune. I'm having so much fun. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know what I've enjoyed reading for pleasure more than with Dune. It's barrel of laughs it's uh, it's a it's a really fun book i get it i'm curious to see what jake and brandon think about it it'll be fun i'm particularly curious to see whether it gets past brandon's defenses or bangs off the (laughs) brandon shield (laughs) and goes cluttering into the desert of arrakis uh anything else you want to say for this aesthetics series literature any other thoughts that like just for a primer people just need to know about the britain word about anything like that
1: Wow. No, I I think that we've covered most of what I would want to say to people. Um, I would like to give a plug for poetry. I think that people really should give themselves to it. Amen. And, um, I think start if if you're a Christian and you want to start out with something that might be accessible and that you might you know enjoy, try some George Herbert. Mm-hmm. Try some. Try John Donne's Holy Sonnets. They can be a little tricky, but they're still really good. I mean, he's got wonderful little lines in there, like faith, if thou repentest, thou canst not lack, but who shall give thee that grace to begin? Mm -hmm. So it's just like grace if thou repentest. So in other words, I mean, it's the idea that, yeah, if I could repent, I could have grace, but how am I ever going to get the grace to repent? And so it's that conundrum. And so, but it's, uh, it's, yeah, give yourself to poetry. And, uh, um, I think I, it's sad that it's a dying art form and it doesn't need to be. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it really is wonderful. People think, people look at it as the pretentious little sister to fiction and literature. And there's actually really nothing pretentious about really great poetry. So,
0: Well, I think especially for Christians, we have giant swaths of the Bible written in it. So, it behooves you to understand it. You can't really get away without poetry.
1: Yeah. And um, we have some poetry episodes on the book ending if you want just a place to start with some good poets. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you can't, yeah go wrong with those two guys.
0: Not at all. If you want somebody more modern, uh, sh- I might recommend two names. Seamus Heaney oh, is yeah, going to use language mm-hmm. that might take a little, have a little bit less of a old timey barrier to get through. And, uh, Billy Collins, I've been
1: enjoying quite a bit of recently. Billy Collins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, Richard Wilbur is pretty good as well. So there you go. Yep. Uh, and I think my, my last, last
2: two birthday presents have been Seamus Heaney and Richard Wilber. Richard yeah, I like you Brandon to, Thank you yeah you're for that, by the way. yeah
1: and then the, my last plug would be don't underestimate the value of reading good children's stories to your kids, mm. and especially good children's poetry as well, having that you will help them learn to love literature and love storytelling and love the sound of language that way and so and it's important. I mean I, I say intentionally good stuff give, give yourself to good stuff, and there's we have episodes on those too. Mm-hmm. like uh, eb white and uh ready player yeah, one yeah yeah lots of ready player one yeah. Mil- mm-hmm.
2: milne's poetry milne's poetry possum's book of practical cats yeah
1: there's all sorts mm-hmm. of good stuff out there so not the movie you cats su- though
2: you're supposed cat. to jump on that I yeah you were gonna jump on
0: well uh by the way Memory. yeah i should have we need to do it's that movie your like yeah. yeah yeah um so
2: did you see about never mind
1: But yeah, so I think those would be the- probably did. Yeah, I think it did. (laughs) Those would just be the last two things I'd want to throw in there is that one thing that I absolutely, I mean, I can't stress how much I absolutely agree with C.S. Lewis about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I really would just like to make that clear for everybody. I agree with him about a lot of things. So, and one thing I absolutely agree with him about is the value and the wonderful- quality of good children's literature and one way that i think you can tell if it's a good children's story is if when you read it it does something to you too Mm -hmm. so anyways there
0: you have it three best children's books to start with
1: charlotte's web amen can we do some poetry in there too sure amen's poetry right on preach it brother and um if i had a children's library and that's all i had i would have definitely those in there and man that'd be difficult to make that last cut, but I don't know if we've read anything else. Well, Narnia, of course, but I might, I was thinking of throwing Narnia, but I I was actually thinking of throwing the Hobbit. in. Yeah.
0: I'd go Hobbit first if I had to save only one.
1: I was, I was balancing the Hobbit or even some Beatrix Potter. Mm -hmm. Some of her stories my Mm -hmm. kids really enjoy. She's pretty fantastic. So it's hard to narrow it to three, but those would be good options. Mm -hmm. Even Laura Engels Wilder is pretty good, but that's, Mm -hmm. I would say definitely Charlotte's Web by far the best. Some Milne poetry. Ogden Nash is pretty funny and great for children. Edward Lear, I would throw him in there as well. Richard Wilbur has some really great children's poetry as well. But um, as far as then the stories, I would I would definitely do. Beatrix Potter is great. If you can get some good Grimm's and Hans Christian Andersen mm-hmm, translations, absolutely. those are fun. You can't go wrong with Narnia series, mm-hmm. but I think The Hobbit. My kids just really enjoy that book.
0: I'm going to make a special plug for Ricky tikki Taffy. My favorite children's Well, story. yeah. Thought like that too. Not my
1: favorite Oh, well then, but. yeah, of course. That's the I knew there was something back there that was actually like wanting to take that third spot. Mm-hmm. And that um it's uh, just told Just so stories. Just so Sorry. stories, yeah. yeah. That's the spot. So there you there go. go. EB White's just wonderful children's literature. A.A. Milne will force you to read fun poetry to your children that you'll both enjoy. Mm-hmm. And the Just So Stories will require that you read to your children in a way that gives life And relationship to your children when you read it. Mm. Because you can't say my best beloved in a cold way, unless you're a monster. (laughs) My best beloved. Yeah. see. So you have to read the just-so stories in a way that is meant to be read to children. So, and you'll feel it too. They're great. So anyways, go out there and read to your
0: children. All right. I got one more question. I'll, I'll let, Jake, I'll let you answer this one first. What is the number one book? Not the best book, mind you, but the book that most- Say Cheese and Die. R.L. Stein Defined you as a person.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, the book, that, the book that most inculcates in you a love of literature. Huh. Someone just wants to fall in love with reading again. Maybe that's another way to ask it. I don't know.
2: Well, I'll tell you that uh, starting out this show with Pride and Prejudice and East of Eden was not wrong. Right. For me personally.
0: I wonder if East of Eden isn't actually the answer for me, I hadn't thought until you said that, but it's not the best written, it's not the best book that we've done, but it is a book that's just full of stories and full of language, and it's True. just like a book, book. All right, Brandon. Yeah. What, what book, dumb question. Yeah. Answer. What book? What book would you recommend to someone to make them fall in love
2: with? You know, uh, well, sorry, I'm going to interrupt Brandon here because I want to come back to just throwing out The Hobbit again. Mm-hmm. Pride and Prejudice and East of Eden did a lot to rekindle my love of reading. Mm-hmm. But just in terms of something that's just straight up easy and fun and nourishing and enriching, it's a pretty low bar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And pretty great.
1: Well, People are willing to give themselves to it, and this is, it seemed to be the experience for people who do. hmm The market decide. Yeah. It's Mar- <laughs> <Yes, Nathan. laughs> um, So we've had some friends who I think were surprised by the, they actually let themselves get like five or six chapters into this book, mm-hmm. and then they just were like, I can't actually, I want to read this. I don't really want to put this down. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, to actually give Warren Peace a shot. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I knew that was what you were
1: going to say.